They went from elation to devastation to elation again. It really is the roller coaster of life. And so these men had that because he had come on the scene. He had told them things they never knew before, and they had believed in him. They believed that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the ancient of days, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, El Shaddai. They had believed that he was their deliverer and their redeemer, and they called him Lord Jesus. But something went way awry. They would ask him, when you go into your kingdom, can we sit on your left and your right? They would ask him, can we rule and reign? Can we be with you, O king? And Jesus would say over and over, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking for. They're their Messiah, their Lord, their king, and even their God was being crucified on a cross. Elation to complete devastation. Wait, no more heaven? Wait, no more forgiveness of sin? Wait, no more ruling and reigning with our king? Wait, did Messiah, the Christ, did he fail? They were devastated. Their souls damned. They didn't know what to do. And there, Cleopas and his friend are walking on the Emmaus Road, and the risen Lord meets them and tells them from beginning with Moses all the way through how scripture was concerning him. And those two men, so excited, elated again, they run back to the eleven. And they begin to tell the apostles that the risen Lord had visited them. And so we pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. And while they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you have seen this day. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it, because of the joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took and he ate of it. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So Jesus is telling the 11 concerning him of the scriptures from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so, as you know, we've been going through the Old Testament looking for Jesus. And we started there in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And where have we seen Jesus in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Where have we seen the Lord? Just over the last two months, where are some things in which we've seen Christ in the first five books of the Bible? So we see him as the creative God. He is the creator God. We've also saw him in Genesis 3. Remember, the, the one who was born of the virgin will crush the serpent's head. We saw him in the genealogy of Genesis 5. That man is appointed mortal and sorrowful, but the blessed God shall come down teaching. And in his death, 
he will bring the despairing rest. That's Genesis 5, the genealogies. You take the name, the meaning of the names, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ there in Genesis 5. What about Genesis 22? Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah. What is a picture? What is that a picture of? We awake here in 2022? Are we alive here? Abraham took his only begotten son, Isaac, up Mount Moriah, and what was going to happen? He was going to sacrifice his son, a picture of what God would do with Jesus, his son, a couple thousand years later. Only this time, God would not command the angel of the Lord to stop. We saw Jesus as the king in in Genesis 49, as he comes from the tribe of Judah. We saw in uh, Exodus, Jesus is our Passover lamb, as God's people enslaved, as God's people burdened down, as God's people not free to do what they want. God comes in with a mighty hand, with an outstretched hand, and with the blood of the lamb, and redeems them out of slavery, and then provides for them into the promised land. Jesus says, I'm the manna that falls from heaven. Jesus was the rock that out out of him came forth living water. Jesus was the deliverer, the great prophet that Moses spoke of. When we look at the law of Moses, it's all about Jesus, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. If you fulfill the moral law, you'll be living like Christ. When you look at the ceremonial law, all the animals and the feasts and the Passovers, Passover and uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of it points to Jesus, our Lord. So the Lord went to the apostles and told of all things concerning him from the law of Moses and then from where? The prophets, we're going to start looking at the prophets next week, starting with Isaiah. And then the last one is what? And the Psalms. So with that, let's look at Psalm chapter 35. And we're going to look at the Jesus of the Psalms or the Christ of the Psalms. And just like he told of his apostles concerning all things about his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we are going to look at the very same aspects through the book of Psalms validated in the New Testament through the life of Jesus Christ. So when Christ came into the world, was he, we saw Christmas last week, was he greatly received or was he mostly rejected from the people? mostly rejected. King Herod rejected him. The religious leaders who were to accept him rejected him. The innkeeper who was to take him in rejected him. Then Jesus grew up to be a man, and throughout the Lord's ministry, he was greatly, greatly rejected. In Psalm chapter 35, verses 17 through 19, we're going to first look at the Lord's rejection by the people. Psalm chapter 35, verse 17. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. Verse 19, do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. So who wrote Psalm chapter 35? Anybody know? It should say in in the heading, David wrote Psalm 35. And here's kind of the context. David is hated. His enemies want him dead. And yet David can't understand why, because he once loved them. Whomever the enemies are of David in Psalm 35, they were David's close people. Maybe family members, maybe close friends. We know that because of verse 12 and 13. David writes, they repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. 
So David is very close to these people and they've stabbed him in the back. They've turned their anger towards them. And so he writes in Psalm 35, 19, do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. So David's writing about his life, but he's also prophesying about the coming Messiah. And the reason I know that is because that quote, Psalm 35, 19, is quoted directly in John chapter 15. So flip over to John chapter 15, verse 18. And Jesus is telling his disciples and teaching them a lesson. So Judas has already left. The Last Supper has already taken place. He's called Judas a betrayer, and he's gone, and now he's bringing the people to take this guy, Jesus, to jail. And then the Lord has communion, washes their feet, and then teaches them about loving one another, and then this lesson about persecution. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that is said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Quoting from Psalm 35, 19. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. What's the context of John 15? Jesus came to those who were to be his friends. Jesus came to those who were to be his family. Jesus came to those who were to be his people. He said, I have not come but to the lost house of the tribe of Israel. I came for the Jewish people. They, like David in Psalm 35, were to be his people and accept him. But it says, they hated me without a cause. Why did the people hate Jesus? Why do you think the people hated Jesus? Because the light came into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light because why? Their sins were wicked. Jesus came to his own and they hated him. Why? Because they were sinful and they didn't want to deal with their sin. And so they hated Jesus because they hated the God that sent him. And then Jesus talks to his apostles and his apostles then teach you and I this truth that in this world, you will be hated if you love Jesus because they'll hate you because they hate Jesus and they hated Jesus because they hate the God who sent him. You inevitably, just like him, will suffer persecution. So in the world of 2022 America, where God is an afterthought, where we are becoming increasingly more secular, where the powers that be are constantly trying to divide us and put us in different groups and boxes and pin us against one another. Know that when the world turns on us, and it will, don't think it strange. They hate God 
They hate God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they hate God's people. And so the world will love their own, but they will hate anyone who is of God. So Jesus came into the world, Psalm 35, and they hated him without a cause. And it wasn't just the populace. It was even his own brothers, even his own family members. See, Jesus had uh, brothers who were halves, you know, half brothers. They had uh, Jude. He wrote a book in the Bible. There was another half brother of Jesus who wrote a book in the Bible. Anyone know his name? James was the half-brother of Jesus, plus others, plus sisters. So Jesus had a big family. Mary and Joseph had kids after Jesus was born of the virgin, and they themselves hated him. In Psalm chapter 69, verse 7 and 8, I'm sorry, verse 8 and 9, Psalm 69, verse 8 and 9. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Bible trivia. Where was that quoted in the New Testament? Do you, do you, does this, uh, ring bells for the zeal of for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Anyone know where that's from in the New Testament? Yeah, there we go. It's when Jesus and John 2 went into the temple. He starts his earthly ministry. It's the very, very first Passover that the Lord in his earthly ministry is going to be involved in. He goes from Galilee, makes his way down to Jerusalem. He sees the temple. And what are they doing in the temple? They've made it into the Bel Air swap meet, Right. <laughs> They've done everything they possibly can to monopolize and capitalize God's system. And so they were making the people poor because they were charging exorbitant amounts because your lamb's not good enough and your sacrificial stuff's not good enough. You have to buy ours, but ours are like 10x what everyone else's is. And so the people began to hate God and hate his system and hate the religion. And Jesus saw this. And he goes into the temple, John 2. He gets cords and he begins to flip tables, chase people out of the temple. Exactly what the Old Testament said, that he will come and cleanse the house. And that's exactly what the Lord did. And then it quotes verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. The Lord's zeal for his father's house was just overwhelming to where he could not allow that sin to happen. But then the second part says, and the reproaches of those who reproach God have fallen on me. So Jesus goes, he cleanses out the temple. Do you think that went over well? Who is this guy coming into our temple and the audacity to, to say that this psalm is referring to him. Who's this guy? Well, it didn't go well. And so Jesus started getting a little unpopular, but even with his own family. So John 2 happens, and guess what? A couple chapters later, there's John chapter 7. I know you mathematicians are blown away by that, but John chapter 7, starting at verse 1. After these things, the things where Jesus had just said he's the bread of life and anybody who wants to be saved has to come through him. So he tells them that then after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse five, for not even his brothers 
were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Going back to Psalm 69, 7 and 8 one more time. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Because Jesus was so radical, his brothers abandoned him. And that's exactly what will happen in our lives too. I can promise you this. If your family and friends are not saved and you are living after Christ, you will be rejected. I I can promise you that it might not be to your face, but you will be rejected because they do not like the God you stand for. They do not like the God you represent. So Jesus came to his own and his own knew him not. One more on this, Psalms chapter 118. Psalms chapter 118, chapters 22 or verses 22 through 27. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Have you ever heard pastors say that? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In context, we're talking about one day. It's not today because the sun's out and it's a nice, beautiful blue sky. Specifically in context, it's talking about one day. Does anybody know that one day that the psalmist is referring to? The Lord will do it. It's a marvelous thing in his eyes. It's a specific day in which we are to rejoice and be glad in it. Here's a hint, verse 25 and 26. Oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. Oh Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So instead of save now, the other word is Hosanna, Hosanna. When do we see that in the New Testament? It's the beginning of Passion Week when Jesus is on the ass of a colt, you know, to fulfill uh, Zechariah and he's going into the temple or into the city and they're laying down palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're hailing him as king. They're saying, here is our redeemer. Here is our Messiah. It's a very specific time. And then look at verse 27. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So what festival were they, the Jews celebrating when Jesus was coming in to Jerusalem. What festival was it? The feast of Passover. The feast of Passover. So what then would be the festival sacrifice? The lamb. And look, it says, tie it to the cords of the horns of the altar. What happens at the horns of the altar? What happens at the altar? There on the ark, the altar, they sacrifice the animals. So what is God saying? The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone, and God did it. And he set a specific day in which is is to be rejoiced, and we are to be glad in it. What day is that? That the Messiah would come and be sacrificed that he would be the Passover lamb whose blood would be shed at the altar. Now, the stone that the the builders rejected actually comes from an old rabbinic uh, teaching. 
So there's two temples. There was the Herodian temple, and that was the one Jesus went in and flipped all the tables around. Well, that temple was rebuilt by King Herod the Great. Before that, the temple was laid waste, if you remember. So the very first temple ever built was a guy by the name of Solomon. It's known as the Solomonic Temple. And so when Solomon built that temple, where the temple grounds were to be built was to be holy to God. There was to be no talking. There was to be no laughing. There was to be no eating. There was to be no drinking. There was not even to be the sound of a hammer there on the temple ground. So what they did was they went to a rock quarry, which is two to three miles away from the temple grounds, and they began to chisel away at the big stones to make the temple. So the the chiselers and the people in the quarry were sending rocks and, and materials to the build site for them to actually put the temple in place. They sent over the chief uh, cornerstone, which is the very last stone meant to be put in place to lock everything together. They sent that first. And the people at the temple grounds are looking at the blueprints and they're saying, this stone does not fit. It's not supposed to come now and it's not fitting our blueprints. They messed up. So they took the chief cornerstone and they threw it over the side of the hill. And there, grass grew over it, and, and they completely forgot about it. The project was going on, and it was getting ready for completion. The people at the build site call to the quarry and say, bring in that chief cornerstone. And the people at the quarry site said, we've already sent it. Now, that's the old rabbinic teaching, that the chief cornerstone to make the temple was sent. The builders rejected it. What is the temple for? What's the purpose? To connect who? God and people. So the idea is the temple that brings God and people together, the chief cornerstone that holds that temple up was rejected by the people. We go into the New Testament, Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Peter is preaching, Acts 4, 10. He and John just got out of prison. They're standing before the religious elite. And, and Peter begins to say these words, Acts 4, 10. Let it be known to you all and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus came to Israel, they rejected him. Jesus came to his own brothers, they rejected him. He was hated, he was despised, and where did he end up because of that? On the cross. And there on the cross, he's hanging, and he cries out his first statement from the cross. What is that statement? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you think he said that? Of, of the innumerable amount or words that he could have constructed and put together, why do you think that was his first statement? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a very important reason why. You two are just too good. <laughs> because of Psalm chapter 22. Flip over to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was on the cross, did they have Amazon cloud? Did they have Google did they have Bible Gateway? Did you have an innumerable amount of Bible apps on your phone? Can you ask Siri? None of that. 
In fact, they didn't even have chapters, numbers, and they didn't even have chapter verses. So if you're trying to recall scrolls and nobody has copies of scrolls in their house, how in the world are you going to memorize this stuff? You can't say Psalm 22, starting at verse 1. 22 and 1 didn't even exist. You couldn't pull up, you know, memory aids via technology. So how do you remember it? Well, in order to remember it, you would remember the whole scroll. And the way you would be able to define the scrolls in your mind was by the very first verse. The first verse would be memorized and then would bring up the rest of the text to your hearing. So when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every single religious Jew around him witnessing the crucifixion, and it was all of them because they were there for the Passover, would have heard that and Psalm 22 would have been pulled up to their memory. And they would have watched every single detail of God unfold before their very eyes. Look at verse uh, 14, Psalm chapter 22, verse 14. So we go from the Messiah being rejected to the Messiah being crucified. Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is just so crazy to me that in such great detail, the crucifixion is being written out. Who wrote Psalm 22? David. When did David live? Does anybody know the time, the dates? So David lived anywhere between about 1050 to about 970 BC. So about 1050 to about 970 BC is when David lived. How did the Jews commit capital punishment or execution? Stone to death. How is David writing out this execution? Crucifixion. Where was the Roman Empire in 1000 BC? Did not exist. Here's another question. When did crucifixion actually was when was crucifixion actually invented? If the Romans were not around, It was invented by king of Persia in 518 BC. That was the very first historical record of crucifixion. The Romans, when the Medo-Persians fell, the Roman Empire after the Grecians came up and they took crucifixion and they made it better. What I'm trying to say is this. At the earliest, David could have wrote about the crucifixion 1000 BC. At the very earliest, crucifixion was invented 518 BC, which means David is is describing an event of crucifixion execution that had not even been invented yet. Imagine we found documents in the 1500s that specifically detailed the iPhone, how it looks, what it's going to do. We'd be mind blown about that. How 500 years before it was invented, how can they write in such detail about this? And yet here God is showing off, saying this is how the Messiah is going to die, and it hasn't even been invented yet. What happens during the crucifixion? All your joins get popped out of place because you're being stretched and stretched and stretched. And the only way that you can breathe is by trying to stretch your diaphragm even further. What happens is your joints begin to dislocate right out of your own body. What else happens? Your heart is like wax. It is melted within me. So you breathe so hard and your heart is working so hard to try to get oxygen through all parts of your body. And it's 
pumping and pumping and pumping that it begins to burst. And so your heart literally begins to swell and get bigger until it bursts. And the uh, American Medical Journal actually did a study, a, a, a real life medical journal on the crucifixion. And they found out that Jesus actually died from a broken heart because of suffocation. Then it says, my strength is dried up like potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my mouth. Psalm chapter 69 Verse 20 and 20 run. Reproach has broken my heart. I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. And also they gave gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Again, another Psalm of David. Christ is hanging on the cross and he says, I thirst. And what did they do to give him Water, they give him soiled or, or old vinegar, exactly like David the psalmist had said would happen. Psalm uh, 20 or 22, verse 16, they pierced my hands and they pierced my feet. So some critics say, well, Jesus was in control of all of that. He knew that they crucified. Jesus was in control of himself saying, my God, my God. Jesus knew the scriptures. And so he was doing everything to validate himself as the Messiah. What critics don't say is what about everybody else? In Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8, it says, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Does anybody remember the cross, the New Testament? Jesus hanging on the cross and they're the crowd. They're crying out, crucify him. They want him dead. And what do they begin to do? They begin to blaspheme him and says, this is the son of God. If you are, do what? Save yourself. Take yourself off the cross and save yourself. Exactly like the psalmist in verse 7 and 8 said, would it be true? Now, Jesus can control himself on the cross, but he couldn't put the words in the other people's mouths. But again, Psalm 22 is a depiction of what is going to happen. Verse 12 and 13 says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as ravening and roaring lion. Again, the crowd is fulfilling prophecy. And then in verse 18, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. In the New Testament, what was that about? Do you remember? Who was casting lots? They were casting lots or shooting dice. The Roman soldiers were to do what? What did they want? His clothing. Again, the New Testament is validating what God said through the psalmist David. They divided my garments among them among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So Jesus came, he was despised, he was rejected, he was then crucified, he was murdered. And then what happens? He goes to the grave for three days, and then pop, he's out. And of course, the Old Testament, of course, the Psalms teach us of that truth. Flip over to Psalm chapter 2. You guys are doing good. We're almost there. Psalm chapter 2. And starting at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So 
There's God in heaven, and then there's the rulers of the world. These are the kings, the monarchs, the prime ministers, the, the powerful people over the governing bodies of people. And what are they doing to God? They're mocking him. They want to fight him. They, they want to scrap with God. Remember, the natural man is a hater of God. There are none who see good. There are none who love God. No, not one. And so they are attacking him. Now, in context, it would be the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Romans. So you would have Festus and then you would have Pontius Pilate and all the rest. They're gathering together against God and his anointed one. Now, what is God doing in heaven? Is he fearful? Absolutely. Look at verse four. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, and this is God speaking, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, this is now God speaking to himself, interpersonal relation right here. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. What do you think verse seven is referring to? Today, you are my son, or you are my son today, I have begotten you. What do you think that's in reference to? Not Jesus's death. Jesus's what? Resurrection. Resurrection. When it's talking about you have been begotten today, it's not talking about Jesus being created. It has two meanings or two ways to interpret. It can mean chronological birth, or it can mean power and authority and privilege and preeminence. When Jesus is called the only begotten, or today I've brought you forth, he's referring to Jesus as being the top of all creation, the preeminent one. And when did God elevate Jesus to that level? The resurrection. It was then Jesus, God's son, in whom he was well pleased that brought that about. In Acts chapter 13, I could, I'll read it to you. Acts 13, verse 26, uh, Paul is preaching. It's his first missionary journey, and he's preaching to Jews. And he starts off Acts 13, 26 and says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, Tell us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him, Jesus, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, that's the Old Testament scripture, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you, of the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus was the son of whom? David. There we go. We're getting it. So that God will fulfill his promise to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, 
no longer to return to decay. He has spoken to us in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, and this is Psalm 16, verse 8 through 10, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not go under decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So let me just read Psalm 16 for you real fast. Psalm 16, verse six, verse eight. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay? So what in the world does this all mean? So what is Sheol? Does anybody know what Sheol is? It's a Hebrew word, which means what? There's no purgatory. It means hell or the grave or death. And that's what Sheol means. And so the Jews thought this, when we died, your spirit hovered around your body for three full days. So for three days, you can, you can minister to the body and you can pray to God for that spirit. After that, it was over. It's called, the Jews called it the decay. And it's when your body goes into the ground and obviously your body becomes, it goes back to dust. What the psalmist in Psalm 16, 18 is saying is that God is not going to abandon his holy one in the grave, nor will he allow his anointed one to be in the ground longer than the body begins to decay, which to the Jews is three days. So when you look at Psalm 2 and you look at Psalm 16, It talks about how Messiah is going to be raised from the dead. And then what does he do? So going back to Luke 24, going back to Acts chapter 1, going back to the end of Matthew, Jesus is crucified. He's put in the ground. He's raised from the dead. He's alive. He goes and he sees his apostles. And then what does he do? Before the Holy Spirit comes, what happens? So Acts 2, Holy Spirit comes down. Acts 1, something really big happens. Without this happening, our faith is dead. Jesus raised from the dead. He visits everyone. And then what happens? He ascends to God. He leaves heaven or earth and he says, all right, you boys are on your own. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Holy Spirit is going to come down and he is going to minister and he's going to help you, but I'm leaving. And so Jesus ascends off into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, the father, meaning all power and authority has been given to him. Look at Psalm two one more time. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's at the resurrection. Verse eight, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah the prophet talks about it, and then in the book of Revelation, how Jesus is going to rule with a rod of what? Iron. And he's going to rule over the nations. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, do homage to the son that he may not become angry. 
and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So Jesus is then king, and all the nations go to worship him. Last Psalm, and then we're done. Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 110, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Where did Jesus go when he ascended? Heaven. Specifically where? To the right hand. And then look what he says. The Lord. It's all capitals. What does that mean? When the writers put it in all capitals, L-O-R-D, what does that mean? It's speaking specifically of God the Father, Jehovah. The, it's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And so they just put the Lord. So God the Father said to my Lord, who, who wrote Psalm 110? King David wrote Psalm 110. So Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the most um, quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Out of all the verses in the whole Bible, the New Testament quotes this Old Testament verse the most. And David brings it up in Matthew 22, and he asks the question, he says to all the Pharisees, he says, who was the Christ's father? And they all screamed, what? Because they're all religious and they know Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. So what did all the religious Pharisees say? He's the son of David. And then Jesus asked a follow-up question. How is it then that Jesus or David says of uh, his son, you are my Lord. How can that be? And they feared to ask him another question. What Jesus was trying to say is this. In the lineage, the Messiah is the son of David. But in reality, the Messiah is the son of God. He has no beginning and he has no end. And David recognizes that. And that's why David humbled himself and called Jesus his Lord. So chapter one, it talks, or verse one talks about how Jesus is at the right hand and he will be in all authority. And then it tells us what it is. He will be king, he will be priest, and he will be the victor. Verse two, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Remember Genesis 49, Judah, the scepter shall not depart. And Jesus was of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So number one, Jesus is going to be the king and he will rule and he will reign. Verse three, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you remember that? Remember Genesis, um, Abraham defeated in the battle, and here comes this random priest. His name is Melchizedek, which means the king of righteousness. He is of the, the city of Salem, which means the city of peace. He came bringing bread and wine, the symbols of communion. And there Abraham worshiped the Lord his God and gave a tithe to all that he owns. The idea is Jesus is a priest far before the law of Moses and the priesthood ever came down. So the priests were the Levites. Jesus came before the Levitical priesthood of Melchizedek, meaning he can be both king and he can be the great high priest. And then lastly, and we'll close with this, 
after one more verse, sorry. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus will rule. He will reign. He will be the king. He is our great high priest, but he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Revelation 1911. I saw heaven opened up and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one except knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following on, uh, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a, a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In the Psalms, it also talks about Judas betraying Jesus. In the Psalms, it talks about an innumerable amount of things of the New Testament prophecies of God. But mostly, it concerns itself with the Messiah, his rejection, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and him ruling and reigning forever. Do you see how God has put the gospel pretty much like in every book of the entire Bible and it's just up to us through the Spirit of God to see that. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can get into your scripture. We thank you, God, that your word is true. We thank you, God, that you are the God of details. Lord, you know our struggles. You know our needs. You know our ailments. You know our weaknesses better than we do, Lord. And Father, you are in control of all things. The rulers and kings and presidents and prime ministers and governing bodies of this world are nothing more than pawns on your chessboard. And you are controlling every single detail for your glory. But Lord, that truth is not just about Jesus. It's also true about us. You know our rising up and you know our going down. You knew us from before the foundations of the earth. And those whom you foreknew, you predestined to be conformed into the image of your son. So that those who have been predestined are those who have been justified. And those who have been justified are the ones who will be glorified. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And Lord, you're for us, you know our needs, and you are able and willing to make all things work together for good. So I pray, God, that we can be pieces in your hand who willingly say, yes, Lord, who are your ambassadors and serve you faithfully until we see the king face to face. Thank you, Lord. You were rejected so we can be accepted. You died so we can live. You faced the darkest hour in history so that we can have the light of life. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as we take a look at finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. 
And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.